Welcome to Making of the Story, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And on this episode, I thought that instead of giving you guys just one intro, I'm going to give you guys the choice of three. The topic that we're going to be talking about today is one that is incredibly important, very well sourced, and quite well studied, and so it kind of admits of a bunch of different questions being asked of it. So uh, I'm going to run through a couple that came into my head as possible framing devices, and maybe, you know, you just pick one. (laughs) So the first one is the biggest. The first question that we're going to answer today is, how does the world become a world? Now, one of the big themes that we've been tracing throughout all of these podcasts is how in the 18th and 19th centuries, there was the creation of an era of globalization. And what we mean by this is that things and people moved around to the extent that they didn't move around before. People worked using materials that came from other countries. The things that they made were sold in other countries. Money that everybody made flowed between different countries because of stock exchanges and you know companies and all these sorts of things. What we're going to be looking at is one particular company that really, really, really set the standards for global international corporate action. And I'm going to tell you that company when I'm at the end of all these questions. So it gives some sense of, you know, tension uh, that builds up, you know, good dramatic tension. The second question that we're going to be looking at today is a smaller question. How do transnational businesses work? What problems do they have? And what were some of the solutions that arose to these problems throughout history? So We live in a world in which the businesses and organizations that we work for often are expansive far beyond, you know, the the, the bounds of our localities. They are multinationals, or at least nationals. They oftentimes are huge. You know, I uh, uh, go to a Facebook office, and Facebook doesn't just have an office in Menlo Park near where I live. It has an office in Singapore, an office in Mexico City, an office in Tokyo. And all of these offices have to do a really difficult problem of coordinating what they're doing with one another. And these problems of international organizations coordinating with one another were even greater when you had higher costs and slower transfers of information. So what did this look like in the 18th and 19th centuries? And how do we connect these problems of trust and communication and information sharing at a distance with those questions of trust and organization that I take to be the central problems of modernity? The third question is perhaps the most parochial or the most important, depending on how you see things. The question is, how did Britain become an empire? How did one tiny little island that was of no real consequence to global international finance or politics become one of the greatest empires that the world has ever seen? Particularly, how did the British imperial force capture India. And all of these questions touch on one big, complicated, momentous, well-sourced, important company. And that company is one part state, one part corporation, 
one part joint stock comp company, one part pirate band, one part mercenary organization. It is the East India Company, known to historians and cognoscenti as the EIC. So we're going to start with first a brief history of the East India Company, and then we're going to talk about a bunch of different ways that we can connect the operations of the East India Company with the things that we've been studying for the past couple weeks. So let's start with what is known as the Age of Exploration or the Age of Commerce, that brief shining moment in the late 15th century when European people hopped on big gigantic boats and sailed all around the world. And let's just think of the two big, you know, high school textbook moments of this, Columbus's discovery of America and Vasco da Gama's discovery of the southern route to the Indies. Now, when you connect these two things together, what they mean is that you get the creation of a new kind of world system, a new kind of economic system that knits together different countries together, different places, I should say. Because of Columbus's discovery of America and the subsequent colonization of South and North America, you get economic connections between America and Europe. Europe sends over people and horses and steel and guns and churches and Bibles, and America sends over silver and gold. Secondly, because of new trade routes that were opened up when people realized you can circumnavigate Africa to get to India and all those delicious spice islands in what is now Indonesia, there were now international commercial flows between Europe and Asia. Asia gave Europe a ton of great stuff. At this time, it's mostly silks and spices. And Europe gave Asia gold and silver that it got from America. Very important to note, I think we've talked about this before, but at this time period, and really up until like the 1800s, 1850s, Europe didn't have things that the rest of the world wanted, except for um, small, you know, technically advanced goods like maps, watches, automata, uh, and guns. And so to keep this international trade system flowing, Europe took precious metals from America and then brought them to India and China. Now, to do this, there was the creation of a bunch of private trading companies. Sometimes they're called private trading monopolies because they uh, have monopolies on importing goods from particular places in the countries that charter them. But a monopoly is not actually a technically correct term because they don't have monopolies at both ends of the spectrum. Even though they have a monopoly at importing the goods to the countries that are, they're concerned with, when they go off and trade, they're one of many different companies that's struggling for supremacy. Um, so the big one is the VOC, the Dutch United East India Company. Um, there's also the Portuguese East India Company, um, which were armed to the teeth, and a bunch of smaller uh, companies like the English Company and the French. The Scots tried to make a, a, a trading company in the late 17th and early 18th century, um, which is known in the historiography as the Darien Scheme, and we call it a scheme because it didn't work out really well, and it kind of bankrupted the entire country, and led to not one, but two uh, mutinous, starving, destroyed expeditions to what is now Panama in a really ambitious attempt to create a Panama Canal. 
Um, it's actually really sad and I shouldn't be laughing. What these companies did was they traded. They took, you know, valuable goods from, from Europe, like, you know, gold and silver and books and uh, uh, things like that. And they brought it to India and China and they traded it for things that people liked in Europe. And from this, they generated a profit. But even though that this was super, super profitable, like when um, uh, Magellan circumnavigated the world, he went with three ships, three gigantic ships. And remember, ships were like the spaceships of the uh, uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. They were the most expensive thing around. Uh, a ship cost 50,000 pounds in the 18th century, whereas a big state-of-the-art cotton manufactory cost 5,000 pounds. He took three ships basically drove three spaceships out into the middle of the ocean. And then only a single ship returned. But it was laden with spices, cloves, peppers, cinnamon. And the profit from this one ship was enough to pay for the entire expedition. So these trading expeditions were incredibly profitable. But they were really hard logistically which you can probably guess from the fact that of the three ships that Magellan sent out, only a single one returned. Now, of course, it's different, you know, when you have an explorer like Magellan from when you have, you know, stable trading routes, but it was still highly risky. Uh, ships could run into bad weather and be sunk. They could be captured by pirates. But equally as risky was simply the matter of trust. Ships need to dock at places where they can get food and water uh, and just kind of like repair the ship with by getting uh, 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 wood and ropes and all those things that you can imagine being like the material fuel that ships run on. But if you're a European trader, then if you land on some isolated island to get water and food, you are always at risk of being ripped off. And so, as a way of establishing potentially trustworthy uh, commercial exchanges, these companies often set up what are called factors, which you should think as semi-permanent merchants who would stay in one place around the trade route and develop contacts and networks of trust with local traders so that when the trade routes came, when the ships came, they would be able to have a person with whom they could deal who they could trust, who knew the local area, instead of just going off to the random stranger who you can communicate with and getting ripped off for a dozen pigs, instead you went to the East India Company's factor who would have local contacts and who would know what a good price on pigs was. Now after these factors were established, some of them became quite, you know, important and quite big. Some of the factors turned into factories, which at this time meant, you know, a collection of different factors. Often these factories were put into forts, which were fortified, by which I mean they were given walls and cannons and stuff like that to defend them against pirates and other people who would want to take their shit. And once these factories became fortified and important, they grew around them the sort of civic infrastructure that we consider a city. They were staffed by governors, they were dotted with churches, they had merchant communities grow up around them, and they became central ports and hubs in their own right. 
And in this way, you could see some of these companies going from just private trading companies to companies that kind of had territorial jurisdiction over places. Let me rephrase that so that it sounds more striking. You go from these places being companies to being cities. And not just cities, but networks of cities over vast distances. And these cities had semi-state-like rights. Now, I'm going to just make like a, a little detour into early modern corporate law because I actually find it kind of fascinating. So one of the big developments legally is the idea that corporations could exist independently of the people who made them up. Now, this was really important because let's say you have something awesome like the East India Company that you want to survive for a really long time. Well, legally, you needed to be able to, infor to, to make contracts, to rack up debt, to do trades, but you wanted to be able to do that independently of any particular person who's in that organization. Why? Because people change. People die. You don't want to have to keep on remaking a legal entity every single time you hire a new person. And so, in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, you get the enshrinement of corporations, of legal persons who can assume debts, make decisions, sign contracts, and do all those things that we know that companies do. My interesting little aside to this is before people understood the power of legal corporate personhood, they had to do all these funny things to make sure that organizations could last for a long time. One of the most long-standing organizations on Europe was the church. And particular churches and particular monasteries and stuff would often have huge amounts of land holdings, huge amounts of money, they would have contracts, they would have, you know, annuities. But if there's no sense of, like, a, a, a corporation as distinct from individual people, you had a legal problem. Who owned the churches and the monasteries and the vineyards? Who made money off of them when they sold things? Who was liable for debt when they contracted debt? Well, the solution was, in the early modern period, is, let's say you have St. Francis uh, Monastery. The legal owner of that was St. Francis, right? Let's say you have St. Peter's Church. The legal owner of St. Peter's Church was St. Peter. And the people who were managing it were managing it in trust for the time when he would come back to earth. Um, so that's the sort of kind of legal wrangling that people had to make up before they had the law of corporations. But there's another end to this because not only are companies and uh, uh, religious institutions corporations, but so too was the state itself considered a corporation. The idea of the passing on unbroken of monarchy from king to king to queen to king was itself considered the same kind of operation of the passing down of a corporate personhood. And similarly, corporations had what we take sometimes to be state-like powers. They could administer laws and justice. They could levy taxes from their members. They had, you know, in, interests in their well-being in the same way that states do. 
And when this was extended to these networks of vast shimmering trading cities, it meant that companies like the East India Company, in fact, were kind of pseudo-states. They were, in Hobbes's wonderful term, worms in the bowels of the state in the big gigantic person of the state, in the big leviathan that is everybody who's in a country, corporations are the parasitic worms living in its bowels. Well, these parasitic worms made tons of money and went outside of the, 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 the person of the leviathan and co colonized other places. So this is the background of the monopolistic trading companies in the 17th and 18th centuries. The big move is that one of these companies becomes incredibly powerful. Drum roll, please, and try to guess which company it is. It was the English East India Company. Was that enough dramatic tension for you guys? I hope it was. And there's uh, two big changes in the English East India Company that I want to highlight that explain a little bit of how it moved from this private joint stock trading company to becoming something that actually conquered an entire continent. So the first move was uh, uh, to look at what happens to the East India Company when, in 1688, British monarchy and constitution changes drastically. Before 1688, the East India Company got its charter, its corporate identity, its monopoly powers from the king. And not only did it get it metaphorically from the king, the king was often a huge investor in the East India Company and one of its boosters. When the king was ignominiously tossed out of the country in 1688 and replaced with the stern puritanical, you know, kind of world warry William III, well, the East India Company had a problem. It was really open to charges of being just one of these old, corrupt, you know, non-Protestant organizations that were tainted by association with the old Jamesian court. The running of the company became a matter of public concern, public debate, and finally, parliamentary oversight. So what happened was, you know, to run the company, the East India Company generated a whole bunch of paperwork. It constantly were, was asking its ship captains and its presidents and its governors to be reporting back on what was happening, to make registrations of every single thing that they bought and sold with the company's money, to keep track of profits and losses and, you know, mild scandals. And because of this, there was a ton of information about how this company was run. And this information was dredged up by the detractors and the supporters of the East India Company and printed in pamphlets and books that were used for a lively kind of debate about what on earth should be done with this strange monarchical and monopolistic uh, contrivance. The solution was to make uh, well, it was kind of complicated, so I'm going to breeze by it really quickly. They made an alternative East India Company called the New East India Company. But as it was getting rolled out and people were getting uh, capital for it, the old East India Company kind of made an organizational coup, and they became one of the new East India Company's largest subscribers, thus getting a bunch of corporate control over the new company that was meant to supplant them. It's like the U.S. government saying, okay, Apple is way too powerful, and we need to create a new Apple called Orange, 
And then as Orange is getting its IPO, Apple buys up 51% of it, and suddenly Orange is basically just a subsidiary of Apple. What happens was that the old and the new East India Company join up together in a united East India Company that has Whiggish pretensions. It, is, it becomes politically a center of support for the new regime, for the Williamites, and for all of those traders in London who would become the masters of the giant pool of money. The important thing, however, is that in these appeals, both the members of the New East India Company and the Old East India Company and the detractors of the East India Company and its supporters all appealed to the state in public to regulate the East India Company. It became from something that was just like an independent, semi-sovereign company to something that everybody in Britain understood as something British that was subject to public information and public debate. The other big one, and it's going to sound a lot bigger than what happened in 1688, was the change of the East India Company from a commercial company to an imperial company. And this happens in 1757 with the Battle of Plessy in the Seven Years' War. I'm not going to go into a blow-by-blow -blow of what actually happens. The important thing to note is that in 1765, after a series of catastrophic military successes, the East India Company basically gets control over a large part of the Mughal Empire, Bengal. Technically, they get the right of Devon, or the tax collection of this area. This turns them from a network of, you know, connected different trading posts to a network of connected trading posts and a territorial empire. This also shifts the way that the East India Company can make money. One of the big problems the East India Company had was it only could trade silver and gold for the stuff that Europeans wanted, and there wasn't enough silver and gold to go around. This right of tax collection gave the East India Company a way that it could get the capital to buy the stuff that Europeans wanted. It also gave it an alternative way of expansion. Before 1765, to expand in its profits, to make money for an ambitious young you know, officer or clerk to get rich, what they had to do was trade or steal, but somehow to get stuff. After 1765, when the East India Company becomes a territorial state, what the East India Company needs to do to get more money is to expand. It can expand its geographical territorial reach. And this is exactly what happens. Over the next hundred years, the East India Company first, and then the British state itself, expands its control from Bengal outwards. And this is the change that leads a company state to become a state empire. So, there's a bunch of different ways that we can look at this story of the East India Company to understand some of the things that this podcast and this historian are interested. One is to look at the technology of how the East India Company is run. Because I'm interested in organizations and objects and how people manage lack of trust and complexity in low information environments, 
I'm really curious about the technical bureaucratic processes that the East India Company did to make sure that everybody was on the same page. And like so much, it was run on an empire of paper. Shipped captains, when they sailed out from, from England over to India, carried with them bundles of important papers that gave them the legal rights to administer justice on the ship. They were papers that gave them the legal rights to trade in particular areas that were addressed from the king of England himself to foreign kings. They were also carrying, you know, journals and account books that they were required to use to keep track of everything that they did so that their operations could be, in theory, observable and correctable by the central authority in London. And this central authority in London met, you know, through a series of meetings, through subcommittees, which published minutes of their accounts, which had debates that were then summed up in circular letters that were sent off to all the stockholders of this company. This was a company the in, that ran on information that was spread through people writing down stuff on paper. Another way of thinking about the East India Company is as a business organization. And this is kind of curious because the East India Company had an organizational form that wasn't supposed to become popular until the 20th century. It's what we call the multi-divisional corporation or the M corporation. This means that they divided up their activities into a bunch of semi-linked divisions that operated independently with oversight from a central authority. The big historian of this, Alfred Chandler, says that the M Corporation doesn't really happen until capitalism kicks into its high gear in the 20th century. But here in the East India Company, you get this multidivisional structure even in the 17th century. You can see why it happened. Because of the stresses of dealing with communication and oversight through such long distances. Remember, it could take six months for one end of a conversation to go from India to England during this time period. You had to give people local autonomy. But if you gave them local autonomy, you had to make sure that they weren't squandering your stuff or, you know, acting in their best interests instead of the company's best interests. And because of this, you have systems of rigid oversight and individual autonomy. This led to there being not only a central network of people involved in the East India Company, but lots of horizontal ties between the people who worked in the company as well. Not only was there a chain of command that went up and down to London, there were horizontal ties between ship owners and presidents and clerks and people who were just traveling and soldiers. And these helped to create the comparative advantage of the East India Company. It wasn't just military might. It wasn't just, you know, European rapaciousness. It was that European traders, particularly the East India Company, could marshal information in new ways. They were at the center of gigantic information flows. Um, one of the big stories of this in contemporary scholarship is understanding how the country trade, how independent trading 
uh, uh, within India by European traders allowed the expansion of trading networks even further. This, according to contemporary scholars, is actually the reason why the East India Company succeeded and the Dutch East India Company floundered, because the East India Company in England gave its members a kind of flexible autonomy. And you can see this, you know, in what they traded. Traditionally, these companies traded bullion for spices. But the East India Company was very, very, very creative about the stuff that it traded. And it didn't just uh, end up trading for spices. It came up with a bunch of goods that we should find very familiar from this podcast. Coffee, tea, and cotton. And of course, they were innovative about the stuff that they traded it for, if we can call it innovative. Uh, instead of just uh, trading bullion, silver and gold, they sometimes traded slaves, or opium, or books, or mercenaries, or guns. Another way of thinking about this is imperialism. The story of how European organizations came to have an outsized influence on the rest of the world. And this lets us think about looking at the East India Company allows us to look at this process a little bit more complicatedly. Complicatedly? Sophisticatedly. That's a better word. The idea that you probably get from high school and from, you know, just osmosing historical knowledge is that Europeans came with capitalism and rationality and warfare and imperialism and they went into the mystic and sensitive communitarian and communistic East and stomped on it. They replaced what was traditional, local, touchy-feely, maybe sometimes a bit despotic, but natural Eastern society with cold, heartless, rational, brutal capitalism. This is a caricature. And it's a bad caricature, because actually looking at the East India Company reveals that the East India Company didn't import capitalism to India, it bootstrapped off of capitalism. The cities and ports where the East India Company had the most success were those that already had incredibly rigorous and sophisticated uh, networks of Asian merchants. Instead of coming into places where there was no capitalism and demanding it, the East India Company went to places where there were already capitalistic institutions and jumping on top of it. And it makes sense when you think about it. They were trading stuff. How else would they find merchants and finance and loans and all of the things that you needed to trade unless there was already groups of people who were interested in finance and trades and loans and things? And from this perspective, it makes Western capitalism look pretty similar to Asian capitalism, except for a few differences. The big differences were raw materials. Europe had the motor of gold and silver from America that allowed it to generate these gigantic world processes of trade from the East. And also later on, Europe had coal and iron. It also had broader networks. European trading companies operated on a much broader scale than other kinds of local trading companies, 
And in this way, we can see them not as something that's entirely new to the world, but instead as other kinds of international traders, people who are called in the literature service nomads, small minorities of people who go, who, who, who use diasporic connections to create networks of trade that benefit them. And for this, we see the importance not in rapaciousness or even technology, but simply in information flows, in networks of people and books and things that spread useful information from one person to another. In other words, the big moral of this story, for me, is that the comparative advantage of European capitalism was in its network of objects, information, and people. Basically, the stuff we've been studying for the past 39 episodes. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. I will be back tomorrow um, when I think that we're going to be talking about uh, social clubs. Uh, I would like to thank Jonathan Lear for the wonderful music and Duncan Barton for the image, as always. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really, 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 really helps. Uh, send me an email. Uh, share us with your friends on social media, light a candle in my honor, and do all that sort of stuff. You can find our website at historian.live. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope that you have a